This is Paul Schneider, and today on the 136th edition of the Sports Untold podcast, also on Rainy Rabbit Radio. My special guest today, who does not need a long introduction, I'm still going to give Bob a little introduction, is Bob Witsit, former executive with the Sacramento Kings, the Sonics, the Blazers, and the Seahawks, a very well-known sports figure, Pacific Northwest. Uh, Bob, I'll get back to you in a minute. My new assistant producer is Olivia Coyne. Olivia known her family for a long time. Olivia's a University of Washington student, and she's... Uh, enjoying um helping on this podcast my podcast is now on spotify youtube amazon google itunes podbeam you can go to sportsuntoldpodcast.net um feel free to click the like button not the hate button the like button and you can comment and go to sportsuntoldpodcast.net and check my show on some of the set outlets uh all right back to you mr witsit bob witsit has been working in the business and management legal sides of sports for decades uh, he's a trained attorney, became member of the Washington State Bar Association in 2021, uh, known as Trader Bob with his unique uh, and active trades that he did when he worked in the sports business. Uh, Mr. Witz, it's the author of a new book, Game Changer, which I think comes on October 10th. I can't wait to read it. Um, Bob now practices law and works as a consultant in the sports and business industries. Uh, Bob, I appreciate you coming on the 136th edition of the Sports Untold podcast, also on Rainer Abbey Radio. Well, thank you, and congratulations. Uh, 136 is a pretty big number. Having fun. I don't have a million listeners or anything, but having a good time, and that, that's what matters the most. Um, I got a lot of listener questions today for you, Bob, and I'm going to try to kind of combine some of them. But just your, your your the announcement of my interview with you definitely uh, garnered some attention from some friends and others that um, – wanted to participate, ask some questions to you. So I'm going to, I'm going to get a few of them in here today. Well, Bob, we're going to talk about your book and your career, but why don't you just kind of tell us uh, how you got the bug to go into the sports business? I know you went to attend University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point. Just kind of tell us how you got the bug to, to do what you've been doing all these years. That's a pretty simple story, really. Uh, as far as I can remember, I've always loved sports. Uh, when I was a little kid, I would always be outside playing in high school, I played football, basketball, and baseball. Then I went to college, uh, University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point. I played three sports up there also. So I've always um, always been at practice, you know, from three to six, uh, always playing games, always loved whatever uh, sport was in season. But um, it's probably my junior year or so in college. It, like many students, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was a communications major and I was in the athletic director's office one day, I think, uh, picking up, a, a you know, whatever you get for getting your, your third letter, I think it was baseball. Um, I think they give you a ring or something. So I, I went in there to pick it up. And while I was waiting for him, I saw a brochure on his desk that, uh, described a sports administration program. At Ohio, at Ohio University, and way back when, that was the only program in the country. And I read it, I read it, looked at it, and uh, I wasn't really interested in the collegiate athletic side of it, but I was very interested in in getting a job in professional sports. And unlike all my teammates, we all, who all thought they were going to go pro, uh, you know, we were all good. But with small college, I was realistic. I knew that wasn't my path. So I thought, what if I could get in on the business side? or the management side of pro sports, which again was much smaller, at least for the NBA back then. So I, uh, I applied to Ohio university. Um, I got rejected because there was so many students uh, applying. And I think they only took 25. 
So I held off graduating. I went back to school, played football for a season, reapplied there and Ohio State, who started, who they were just starting a program. And I got accepted to both, and I decided to go to the larger school, Ohio State, and uh, got my master's degree in sports administration. But really, the key for me was to try to use the internship to wedge my way into a team through an internship, which I eventually did by uh, finally getting an internship with the Indiana Pacers. And my my whole thought was I had to find a way to get my foot in the door. And if I could ever get my foot in the door, I would just be that guy who hustled so hard uh, they'd never show me the exit. And uh, fortunately, uh, those things happened. And uh, that's how I got started in my career. Great background. Bob, I want to ask you something. You have a, a a sports management degree or sports administration degree. You also have a law degree. Do you think it's important to have one of those types of degrees or both of them to break into the sports business? That's a great question. Um, you know, as I was writing the book, I actually added a, a little section in there on how to get a job in professional sports because students um, or any lecture I give, they always ask that question. And I, and I will answer it this way. It does not hurt. I think having a degree in sports administration to learn a little bit about the business and hopefully uh, use the school's network and clout to, to get the internship is important. Uh, a law degree is invaluable. So much of what we do in sports uh, is legal. I mean, everything is legal from uh, the internal operations to everything we do externally. And if you combine the two, it's kind of a double whammy. So I would say those are two of the uh, very successful ways to try to get in the door, but they're not required. And so I would never tell somebody, go spend the money to get extra education, but uh, they're two very good tools. And uh, I think they would give you a definite leg up. Good feedback. Good feedback. Bob, you know, there's so much of your career. I, I, I would, I would talk to you hours. I would not do that to you, but you know, one thing that always is impressive about your career and tell us what more about this. I think when you were a Sacramento Kings executive, you were involved in the first corporate corporate arena naming rights deal. Tell us about that. That's quite a fun story. So back then, that would be the mid-80s, all the arenas were either named after some politician who used public money or it was named after a municipality. Uh, I think other than maybe the Carrier Dome in Syracuse, where the Carrier Air Conditioning Company had made a donation to get their name on the building, uh, that's the way it was. So in Sacramento, our ownership group was building a new arena, and it was one of the first ones, I believe, uh, or one of the few that was privately financed, no public money. So one day, the managing partner, Greg Lukenbill, came into my office. Uh, I was pretty much in charge of most everything going on with the business. He said, uh, hey, can I name this arena, whatever I want to name it? And I said, yeah, you could call it Lukenbill Palace if you want. It's your building, whatever you want. He goes, no, 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 no. I need to make some money. Can, can, can I put a corporate name on there. And I don't know why I didn't think of it. I probably should have thought of that, but the light bulb went on. I said, absolutely. So he and I spent the next week kind of brainstorming uh, elements of a, a, what I call a naming rights sponsorship package. And then he hired an ad agency to go sell it. And he was going to give them a 10% commission on the gross amount that they brought in. 
which was great. I was busy hiring staff, selling tickets, uh, doing all the things you had to do with a, with a startup franchise. Then a month or two later, he, he walked into my office and said, they've struck out. I want you to do it. And I was thinking, man, I am so busy. I don't have a moment. But I said, OK, I'll give it a shot. And I met with all the local people. I had some traction with Apple, some traction with Toyota. Uh, but someday I sort of worked my way into Arco at the local level, and they loved it. And so before I knew it, they um, they invited me to Los Angeles to meet with the chairman of the uh, company, Lod Cook. I'll never forget it. Top floor of the Arco Towers in L.A., there was probably 20 people at the meeting, all representing Arco and agencies and everything. And I'm making my pitch. And as soon as I start the pitch, uh, Lod Cook says, hurry up, I got to catch a plane in 10 minutes. And when you're doing the marketing presentation, I've done enough of them to not get frustrated. But, uh, you know, how much? How much is it? And so I'm trying to speed it up without losing my uh, my my sales pitch. But anyway, I get to the end. He just says, I don't like it. Does is anybody here like it? And they were all Arco people and nobody raised their hand. So I was shot down. I was embarrassed. I was probably beat red. I was like a wounded puppy. And, you know, I didn't have much to say. And then as he's walking to the door, he turns and says, Bob, come walk with me. Well, I didn't even know he knew my name. I, you know, I, I thought he didn't even get my introduction. So he, at least he knew my name. I thought that was nice. And we're walking down the hallway and he says, uh, I want to do a deal. I go, whoa, that's not the impression I just got. He said, isn't it funny that when I say I don't want to do a deal, not one of my employees raised their hand in support of your your pitch. And he says, you wouldn't have got a meeting with me if they all didn't like the deal. So stay true to yourself. And, and But anyway, he told me the advertising was good, but take some of that out, especially things you can sell. And the angle I want you to focus on is community relations. I've got 20 or so full-time lobbyists up in Sacramento, and it's all about offshore oil drilling. And I want them to think Arco's responsible for bringing pro sports to Sacramento and, and have the luxury suite. So I tailored it a little differently, but he taught me a couple things. One was uh, there's always another angle. I had not thought of the uh, lobbying the, you know, for that particular client. Uh, and number two, if you get a, a meeting with the really big boss, uh, there's a high likelihood that they they probably want to do it or he wouldn't have taken the meeting. So anyway, it was not a major it was a major deal back then. I think it was maybe uh, seven or ten million dollars over the life of it, uh, where today these naming rights are going for for north of half a billion dollars. So it really opened the the the, the, uh, the path to a new form of sponsorship. And it's it's the single largest sponsorship that every team has today. What a story, Bob. And, I, and I, I, I tell my clients practicing law for many years now that part of my job is to try to get a party to go from no to at least kind of yes. So, <laughs> I I, 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 I'm a little different. I say no is just a starting point. Right. <laughs> love it. Love it. Great story. Great story. Seemed like the guy was playing a little mind game with you, too. You know, right. But uh, great story. Bob, you know, I, I when I interview authors and I, I just had Jeff Smalley on a few weeks ago I, and I asked him a similar question about his book. I always learn a lot. My listeners do too. When you learn from an author why they title their book the way they title their book, why did you title your book Game Changer? Tell us about that. Well, to be honest with you, the publisher came up with the name. I um, 
Uh, I think we had some working title inside the front office with Trader Bob, which I told him from the beginning, not a good name, too long, not a great working title. And I told him, I said, you come back to me with with uh, title possibilities after reading the book or the manuscript and uh, cover design ideas. And, you know, they wanted a picture of me on the cover, which I said, no, what I really want, and I'll be honest with you, I said, I, I want a basketball on the cover and I want the subtle Sonics colors uh, because that's uh, the past and hopefully the future is very important to me. So after uh, however many people at the publisher's office read it, they came back with, you know, half a dozen names. And the one that just jumped out to me was Game Changer. I think it's easy to remember. The word game fits into a lot of things. Game Changer can refer to negotiations. It can refer to a lot of things. But I just thought it was clean, simple, and and, and I kind of like, you know, something that people might remember. So uh, I'll give them the credit for for the title. And you were a game changer in many ways in the work you did in the sports industry. Well, some of the things we did were innovative and and uh, maybe the first for or 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 things that hadn't been done for a while. But I think everybody needs to be a game changer if they're going to be in the industry, which means you've got to do it before the rest of the the world understands that's what needs to be done. Because if you wait till everybody knows that something has to be done, it's too late. You're not going to get it done. If I want to trade a player because he's in decline. I need to trade that player before the rest of the league knows he's in decline. Once the league knows he's in decline, I'm not going to get anything for him. So the game changing is a little bit of innovation, a little bit of timing, a little bit of trusting your instincts, a little bit of, you know, strategy on the court or with the roster. It can mean a lot of things, but uh, I think it's appropriate to a a sports themed book and uh, very happy with it. Yeah, no, right, right. But by the way, you were dubbed, I think, by some in the media as Trader Bob. Have you liked that nickname? It's been fine. I've been called worse. I think uh, my first season, we, um, you know, the Sonics hadn't been very good the the previous two years. They'd missed the playoffs, and uh, one of the things I wanted to do was change the team from a walk it up the the, the floor, slow, grind it out team to uh, uh, an athletic, up and down, a little bit more high scoring. And build it around the what what I thought were the two best players on the roster, Xavier McDaniel and Tom Chambers. So result of that is, I made a lot of trades my first season, and I was a young uh, young president and general manager. I was only thirty years old, so I think I made nine or so moves that first season, which is a lot. I mean, that's a lot for any uh, GM in, in really over several years. So. Uh, the coaches started giving me all kinds of names like the liquidator and this and that, but, um, the media just sort of, you know, coined it. And I always kind of took it as a, uh, more of a compliment than not. I, I kind of viewed it as, uh, he's aggressive. He's willing to make a move. He's made a lot of moves. Hopefully most of the moves have, have worked out, but, um, yeah, I never really, took it as, oh, my goodness, let's go build a brand on that, or, oh, that's terrible, what an insulting name. I just kind of took it as a part of the fun stuff that comes with sports. Good way to break it up. By the way, Bob, you worked for the Sacramento Kings. Did you feel bad that Kansas City lost their team? Well, I was uh, I was the point man for moving it. to, to uh, So I worked for the Kansas City Kings for three years, and then my fourth season we moved the team to Sacramento. And, yes, I felt terrible. Um, 
but not as terrible as uh, not even close to what happened to the Sonics. The difference being the Kings were not really that well supported in Kansas City. Now, it could be a combination of the market, could be a combination of maybe we didn't do a great job. Certainly the team was not really very good uh, year in and year out. Uh, but we gave the community a two-year notice, basically, that, uh, hey, we have to do a better job. We have to get this team to break even or they're going to move. And so when the time came, I got to tell you, it's a very um, sobering press conference in Kansas City. I felt bad. I I, yeah, I knew the you know, the fan clubs, I, I I was, my first two years, I was the VP of marketing. So I, I knew, I knew these people really well and interacted and uh, it was tough. And I told them, I said, uh, and I kind of made this up because I had no idea. I said, if you lose this team, you won't get an NBA team for at least 25 years. So let's really try to work together. It's been long, much longer than 25 years, obviously, and they still don't have a team. But the flip side is when we moved to Sacramento, I moved out a few months uh, before the season ended to start building a, a staff and doing all the things. But my goodness, it was like, uh, you know, ticker take parade. It was unbelievable the support we got in Sacramento and the support Sacramento continues to give the team today. So I'm not a fan of moving franchises. Uh, I'm a fan of if you want a team in your market, wait till the league expands and then put a really good bid in and, and try to, to win a team that way. Bob, I, I, you brought the Sonics relocation battle. And full disclosure, I, I was uh, working with the Sabre Sonics group, and I know Brian Robinson, Steve Pyatt quite well. And I got kind of a legalistic, maybe a little bit of a wonky question for you on this, but you, you're a trained attorney and you've worked in the sports <laughs> business for so long. So we had an idea that if the Players Association filed a grievance, um, based on a, a, a basketball-related income decline, moving the franchise from from Seattle to Oklahoma City, that it, it could have it could have affected collecting bar, collect bargaining agreement. And we mentioned it to Slagorn. He was really into the idea. And we wanted the union to file a grievance to try to stop the relocation. Do you think, hypothetically, if the union got involved, that if it became a collective bargaining issue, there could have been a way to stop the relocation that way? You're talking about the Sonics moving to Oklahoma City? Yeah, yeah. We wanted the, the Players Association to file agreements. They were very friendly to us, but they decided not to do it. Could that have been yeah. a, an angle to try to stop the real Well, it, it, it's certainly always an angle. But uh, to, to throw water on the, the first part of your argument, uh, the revenue in Oklahoma City was greater than the revenue in Seattle. So that will pretty much kill the first part of your argument. Uh, so not only did the players not lose money, they actually – uh, the the, the basketball-related income pie grew. So that that's a problem. Um, the other part of that sliding scale is BRI goes up and down in every market, partly based on how good the management is, how committed the owner is to spending, you know, marketing dollars in the things, uh, how committed you are to, to uh, building a, a good roster and all that. But I think at the end of the day, the union obviously is a little less interested in can we put a few more million bucks into the BRI? Because everybody's spending way above the cap. They're more interested in, in in increasing the minimum salaries, maybe getting expansion, getting more jobs, getting higher maximums, you know, those kinds of things. But uh, as an attorney, it's always a good angle. I mean, there's always a way to try to muck things up a little bit. But, uh, it, it, you know, it takes a lot of people with a lot of will 
and, and a lot of juice to get it done. But, you know, very creative and uh, actually a good thought. Yeah. Well, SLED was into it, but the union also didn't want to do it. They were very funny to us, but they didn't want to do it that way. But yeah. but appreciate all your aspects. I, I had to ask you a little bit of an esoteric question. No, so, it's a great question. And, uh, and, and as you know, when those things come up, you don't have a lot of time. It's not like somebody says, hey, in five years, I'm moving my team, start working yeah. on that. So you have to galvanize quickly, not just from the legal standpoint, but also from the political and getting all the right people to, to want to participate. So usually you don't have a lot of time and, uh, you know, things things move quickly. A lot of moving parts there. You work for two well-known Pacific Northwest sports owners, the late Barry Ackley and the late Paul Allen. Uh, how were they different? How were they similar as sports owners? Great question. Obviously, everybody's different in their own way. Um, you know, how they made their money, what their expertise is, what their philosophy is, uh, what their ability is to uh, fund operations and things of that nature. So they're totally different that way. Paul obviously had much more of a much deeper pockets. Uh, Barry... Um, not as deep, but I think if, you know, Barry was probably uh, first and foremost focused on making sure the business wasn't losing money because the, the, the couple of years he owned it before I got there, he was losing significant amounts of money. And when he hired me, he made it clear, I can't lose any more money. And, you know, he kind of had, you know, don't lose money is the first priority. And then one, a let's win a bunch of games where Paul had priority number one, let's win a bunch of games. And then maybe 1A, let's try to manage this thing pretty well as a business. But Paul made it crystal clear to me, he was in charge of payroll. So if he wanted to spend way beyond or spend on guys that I didn't think were worth the value, he would never hold that against me. I, I would have to focus more on the cap uh, and not worry so much about if we're going to lose some money on a given year because he wanted to, go overboard in that area where Barry um, had me focus really on both. And, and honestly, I think the right way to do it is to focus on both. I think if you run your business and your basketball operations as a business and, and think out all the moves properly, uh, you'll probably do a better job because if you do one of these kind of crazy salary deals, just because you can afford to do it, it can cripple your cap for five years and 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 put you way behind. So uh, I would say this, you know, the fact they both wanted to win, that's really important. Um, every owner will say that, but not every owner will will back up those actions. And I think they both backed that up pretty well. Um working in the NFL versus versus the NBA, what, what are the what are some of the business differences in the leagues? Well, I think probably the first thing with the NFL is uh, all their media is uh, pretty much a national deal other than some preseason games. And, and all the teams share in that uh, giant revenue stream equally. And you have so few games. When I was running a team, we had 16. Now there's 17 games. So really, if you have one or two bad games in the NFL, that can keep you out of the playoffs. The NBA you're able to do virtually all your own games uh, with local media or streaming or whatever you choose to do. So you have a lot more uh, flexibility and a lot more creativity, I think, from a marketing perspective. But from a, a team performance, when you're playing 82 games, don't get me wrong, 
every single game to me is life or death as a GM. I am, I'm in there trying to motivate the coaches, the players every single night. But when you play that many games and you might play three and four nights or four and five nights, you have a bad week and you lose three in a row. You don't have to uh, look for a bridge to jump off because it's probably not going to make or break you getting into the playoffs. It might have an impact on your seeding at the end, but there's a lot more time to recover during an NBA season if things aren't going well. Or in the NFL, there's really no time to recover. You lose three at the beginning of the season. Even if you get on a hot streak, you're going to have to struggle to make the playoffs. So, And culturally, it's a little different. Uh, virtually all the NBA contracts are, are guaranteed. So if you cut the player, they're going to get paid. And even though more and more NFL contracts are becoming guaranteed, there's still quite a few of them that are non-guaranteed. So if you cut a player, you you won't have to pay that player. And there's just so many more players in the NFL. So you need a uh, you really need the whole team to be working well to win. Each player, when there's 11 guys on the field, they they sort of have to do their assignment for that play to do well. The NBA, you need five guys to execute a play. But honestly, if you've got the right player and he's got the ball he might only need one other guy to maybe give him a, a pick here and a pick there. And uh, that superstar can, can, can kind of carry you. So there's uh there's differences, but there's similarities and uh, they're both really exciting and, and, and a lot of fun. For a minute, back to Barry Ackley and, and Paul. It, it seemed, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seemed like Barry Ackley generally had a media portrayal as being, maybe being a little on the a little rough edge and Paul Allen's media portrayal seem to be a little more with more reverence. Um, were those depictions fair about how Paul Allen was depicted and how Barry Ackerley was depicted at times? Oh, yeah, I think they're fair. I, I, I start with Paul. He was um, more introverted, more quiet, was not ever looking for the public limelight. So I think when an owner is not looking for the spotlight, fans and media tend to uh, give him a much longer rope. They're not looking to call that person out you know, as long as they're financially supporting the team in a way that the media or fans think is important. Plus, he was uh, a co-founder of a, a, a company that I think everybody in the Northwest is extremely proud of, Microsoft. So we all, not we all, most of us use a computer at some level today. So it's a, a good thing. Barry's business was primarily uh, billboards, out, outdoor advertising. And he had more confrontations, you know, whether he would... Uh, cut trees down that were covering his billboards or putting too many boards up, uh, violating the permits. He probably had a business that maybe wasn't as warm and friendly to everybody. Uh, so when he maybe crossed the line a little bit, uh, those missteps lingered out there. And then frankly, his first few years of ownership, uh, he took a, a team that had just recently won the championship kind of let the uh, the star players go or didn't re-sign them. And then the team got really bad really quick. And when you cut through it all, if your team's bad, you're going to be portrayed a lot differently. In Paul's case, he bought a playoff team. He kept it in the playoffs. And at the end of my nine years, we had a 21 se uh, seasons in a row where we'd been in the playoffs. So it was always a really good brand of basketball. So no matter what you may think about an owner, if that owner's team is winning, uh, I think the fans and the media tend to smile on that person a lot more. If that owner's team is losing, whatever their grievances are, they tend to uh, 
be a little bit more harsh. So, uh, yeah, I don't think the, the, the they were unfair. And I think when you own a sports team, there's going to be some public uh, uh, arrows coming your way sooner or later. That's just the nature of the business. Interesting insights about both men. And as we know, Microsoft is not seen as being warm and cuddly with everybody either. But, you know, you're, you're quite... <laughs> I mean, the, I mean the product, not necessarily the uh, the uh, the style of business. Right, but, right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Bob, you know, you you've worked in the NBA, you worked in the NFL. Would you ever want to have an experience being an executive of the National Hockey League or a Major League Baseball, or maybe as a college athletic director? Would you ever want to try something different? Well, I did some consulting for the Kraken when they were uh, becoming an expansion team and the construction of the new Climate Pledge Arena. I'm on the board of Diamond Sports Group uh, right now, which um, is the largest owner of broadcast rights with NHL teams, uh, MLB teams, and NBA teams. So I, uh, I'm a little bit around the, uh, the NHL, baseball, and, and basketball. Uh, I'm open to anything, but but truly, I think for me, the next thing uh, now that we're getting through the book launch here is. Uh, I'm really just uh, in the bullpen, current, ready, anxious, willing to, uh, if and when the NBA says they're going to do RFPs for expansion, I want to do everything I possibly can to help whatever the effort is in Seattle to get a team back. And that means uh, I'd be thrilled to be a part of an ownership group, happy to be a part of a management group, happy to be the guy selling popcorn if that's what it takes. Uh, because... I believe in my heart that Seattle should never have lost a team. Seattle deserves a team. Seattle will support a team. And uh, I do believe it's coming. I, I think it's coming in the near term. I, I don't have the crystal ball. I don't speak for the league. But um, when they say RFPs and a bunch of cities start lining up, uh, you know, both of my hands are raised for the Seattle effort. So, uh, But to answer your question, I'm open to anything involving – any sports. I've done some consulting with uh, the Premier League in soccer. I've uh, done consulting with uh, arenas and stadiums. Um, really anything involving the sports business, I can get excited. So it's uh, it's not too difficult for me. Love it. I was you, you, asked, you answered a question I had in your answer you just gave that you would be interested in working with a Seattle expansion team. So that, that's great. That's great. Uh, you saved me a question there with, with your with – your, Well, with, just, just give me a double hands up on that. The uh, – uh, I'm more than volunteering. I'm all in. So whatever that means, uh, I'm in. Exciting. Exciting. Bob, I've asked these two questions to about every guest the last few years. Uh, I get amazing answers. Uh, who is a living sports figure you'd love to spend some time with and chat with? It can be a a player, an owner. Who's a deceased sports figure in history you would have enjoyed interviewing or spending time with? Well, let me start with the second one first. Okay. Um, and maybe it has to do with my childhood. Uh, you tend to remember these people a little differently when you're you're younger. But I grew up in Wisconsin. I grew up in the the, the heyday of the Packers and Vince Lombardi. Uh, I've, I had the pleasure of meeting a lot of those Packer players as as I got older and they got older, and hearing all the Vince Lombardi stories firsthand. But I would have loved to say uh, I, I I had dinner with. Uh, uh, the Maras and people that that had Vince as an assistant coach. I've talked to a lot of people that that knew Vince. I'd never met him, obviously. I would love to have met uh, and interviewed or spent time with Vince Lombardi in his heyday as a as a coach and GM of the Packers, or even when he went on to to Washington. So, 
uh, I would say he's kind of an idol and uh, I use Lombardi time. I use a few of his sayings. I think uh, uh, maybe it's just a little bit of the cult, the religion, what we get when you grow up in Wisconsin. In terms of current, that's a, a fantastic question. Uh, <clears throat> I would hope that if there's somebody I'm really passionate about wanting to meet, I would try to go meet them if they're still living. But um, uh, there's so many of them I respect. Um, you know, I'm not even sure I can give you a quick answer on that. So I don't know. Willie Mays, Sandy Koufax, I, their names have come up. So. Yeah, but they're deceased. You know, no, you they're alive. Meet... Sandy Koufax. Oh, deceased. yeah, I'm sorry. They're, I'm sorry. But my bad. They're done. Yeah, yeah. Um, retired guys. That's a better question. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure I would go with baseball. Um, you know, guys like Bill Russell, who just passed away. I got to know Bill quite well. Um, um, who we can come be... back to it. Let me come back to it. That, that's, Let's come back to it. Okay. I, I can't believe I'm stumped. But, you know, no, no, no. So okay. many, I don't want to leave. Here, I'm going to have two that. more similar questions. Okay. Uh, you're a trained attorney. Um, who is a living figure in the law you'd love to talk to or spend time with? And who's a deceased figure in the legal world you would have, you would have enjoyed spending time with? Well, I, I, uh, somehow I think Thurgood Marshall would have been pretty interesting. I think... Uh, not just from a civil rights point of view, but I, I you know, I, I reading some of his opinions and how they're written and his perspective, I think, uh, and the era uh, that he was um, uh, a justice, I think that would, would be kind of interesting. Uh, modern day, there's, there's a lot of people on the profession. If, if you turn on the TV today with the politics, you kind of wonder why they're not getting disbarred. But uh, there's so many, there's so many uh, attorneys like yourself doing a variety of other things, podcasts, uh, interesting name. I know he doesn't practice, but it relates a little bit back to the book. I'd kind of like to meet John Grisham. I, I've read all, I, I think I've read all his books. Uh, they're easy reads. They're, 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 they're fun. And the transition from attorney to uh, unbelievable uh, a novelist uh, would fascinate me. I think I'm going to give you an A plus on the Grisham answer. I, I mean, I, that's just a heck of an answer. Okay, uh, thank love you. It. Love it. No, that's great. That's good. Thurgood Marshall for sure. Lewis Brandeis. I think uh, Smolian said Lewis Brandeis for his deceased legal figure, and he yeah. said for for his living legal figure, he said Floyd Abrams, the First Amendment lawyer. Yeah. But you gave great answers too. Yeah, no, so. I mean, there's so many of them. I, I you yeah. don't want to. Uh, yeah, you don't you don't want to leave anybody out. All right. Uh, who are who's a living figure in the business world we can include sports business world you'd love to spend time with it is a deceased figure in the sports business world you would love to spend time with you know this is a name that everybody throws out there but i've actually never met him and um you know there's not you know just based on uh life expectancy charts if, if it's something i'm gonna do i should do sooner rather than later but uh, I think Warren Buffett might be an interesting one for me. I, I love reading his letter to shareholders. I, I, I've seen uh, a lot of his annual meetings that are televised. Uh, I'd like to really find out, is it really that simple? Is, you know, the way he approaches it, is it just that simple? Or is he just giving us the frosting on the cake? And there's a lot more underneath it that that he's not sharing with us. But uh, uh I just love the absolute common sense that he he seems to send out there to business people, and yet we all try to make it much much more complicated Great than name. it is. Um, you know, maybe somebody like a Steve Jobs or somebody like that. 
Um, you know, I guess you could go back to a Henry Ford, somebody who was a real innovator that created something that uh, I don't think, how would I live without my iPhone today? Well, it wasn't that long ago, but, but how do you really develop and, and get to know that? So somebody like, like a Jobs or a Henry Ford, you know, get us off uh, horses and into an automobile, you know, I don't have that kind of vision. You know, I, I, those guys are fascinating. So, so somebody like that would be really, I think, pretty interesting. I was just at the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan a couple weeks ago. I went to the Seahawks game and the Huskies game in Michigan, yeah. and I uh, saw the Ford Museum. I recommend it. So. Oh, yeah. I, I'd love to see it. I'm sure it's fascinating. It's fascinating. All right. Have you thought through about who's a living sports figure you'd enjoy spending time with? No, I've been talking to you. I haven't had time to think. <laughs> we'll come uh, back. We'll come living back. sports. Oh, yeah. We'll, okay. I'll, I'll try to think why I'm talking. Right, we'll that's, come back. that's hard. We'll back. I, I better not be chewing gum at the same time, too. No, I know. I throw all these other questions at you. So, Bob, tell us about uh, your decision uh, to get a law degree and become a licensed attorney about two years ago. Tell us kind of about that journey of going back to law school and so forth. You know, that really is the, the story is not so great. The fact I did it is, I think I'm starting to amaze myself a little bit. But I was, um, I don't know, 60, 61 years old, something like that, and doing my consulting, living and dying with sports, which I'll always do. You know, I'm, I'm, I stay as super current because I love it. But I, I, I see a lot of people who have retired, and I hate to use it, the phrase this way, but they get old. And when I say they get old, I mean mentally their brains kind of get turned off. They, they no longer are sharp. And I don't want to ever be that person, but I may not have a choice. So I, I was thinking what would give me a great challenge and could be useful. And I thought, well, many, many, many years ago, I was just enrolled in law school, but then my job changed. I couldn't go. And I, it's not like I had the go to law school on my bucket list that I hadn't checked it off. It absolutely was no longer there. But I thought, you know, if I could get a law degree, uh, when I physically slow down someday, if my mind is still sharp, I could still practice law because what great mental stimulation. I'm going to go to law school. And my wife is an attorney and she went to law school many years ago. And so we're driving one day and I kind of say, hey, I'm, I really want to challenge myself mentally. I got an idea. And she blurted out, oh, I'll take Spanish lessons with you. That'd be fun. I go, no, no, it's a little bigger than that. And she said, are you serious? I mean, law school, and she's really, really smart, but law school was the most difficult thing she's ever done in her life. And I knew that, but you you know that, but you don't really know that. And uh, I will say this, when I say I'm going to do something, I don't say it casually. And when I say I'm going to do it, I do it. And I don't, I'm not saying I always do it well, but I'm, I never quit. I always get to the finish line unless somebody else tells me I'm no longer allowed to be in the race. And so I, I did it. And I will tell you, it was an enormous amount of work. And as a guy in his sixties, all the memorization, all the reading, I kind of got to the point in life where when I'm reading something, if it's boring, I just toss it aside and I do something else. That's not law school. If it's right. boring right. or dull or dense, you got to grind your way through it. And it no took doubt. a little while to get that brain really focused. And I was studying 10, 12 hours a day. Um, and I had to learn a lot of technology, a lot of platforms that I'm not a real high tech guy. I can't type very well. So I had to get faster at typing. 
And, you know, probably started a little slow in law school, but I picked up steam and I, I did every single assignment, read every single thing, and there was a lot of it. And I got a lot out of it. And I got to tell you, I really, really enjoyed it. But it, I, I, I gave up so many social engagements and things. And uh, very fun, very ironic that literally on my 65th birthday, that was the day of graduation, and the uh, the chancellor, when he's handing out the diplomas, did say in his opening remarks, we have students as young as, I think he said, 23 years old, and we've got somebody who's turning 65 today. Thank goodness he didn't mention my name. But uh, um, And then, you know, to, to cap that off, then you study for the bar exam and all the memorization. And, oh, my goodness, I'm uh, so glad I passed that because that's, that's a test I'd never want to take again because that is just a uh, – as you know, there's a bunch of stuff that doesn't really mean you're going to be a good lawyer, but I think it's sort of the rite of passage. And uh, so anyway, it, it all worked out well. And I will tell you, I've already um, I've already uh, used the shingle. I'll, I'll use it some more. Um, it's helped me with some business situations. It's helped me in some of the sports work I'm working on and some just legal things. So very happy I did it. I would never recommend it unless you're absolutely all in. It's an all in kind of situation. No doubt. You went back to Minnesota for law school? Yeah, it was Mitchell Hamlin in St. Paul. It was a hybrid program. So uh, two weeks a semester, we were in classes uh, 12 hours a day. And the rest of the semester, our classes were live on Zoom. This is pre-pandemic. So we were we were there before everybody else got there. And that helped me a lot because uh, I actually attended every session live and almost every time I'd be like one of one or two students live and the rest of them would watch them recorded. So I would get an hour live with a professor and, and you can imagine one-on-one -on -one with your professor for an hour. Plus I developed great relationships. I've been invited back the last two years to, to lecture up at the law school and uh, I've enjoyed it. I love it. So uh, great experience, a lot of work, very rewarding. And very happy that I did it. Did you have an apartment in Minnesota during your law school years then? No, I'd go up there. Uh, I'd go up there two weeks and I'd, I either would uh, drive over to Hudson, Wisconsin, where my mother has an apartment. She's 95 right now. And I'd stay with her. Or if the schedule was such that the classes started at 7 a.m. and we had moot court or whatever it might be on those days, I might uh, I might rent a hotel uh, in downtown St. Paul. And, and I worked it that way. What a story. God, what a story. Um, all right. Change the subject again. Uh, was the jailblazers term fair or unfair? Well, I, I think it's I think it's fair because it's a catchy name. And sports is about catchy names and 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 all that. And we had uh we had a cast of characters. There's no question about that. But we also had some really great guys. I think uh at one time, I had three guys on the roster who had each won the J. Walter Kennedy Citizenship Award, which goes to one player in the league each year and one player only. Um, I'm not sure any player was even arrested while I was there. But before I got there or after I left or different parts of their career, you know, a couple of them got arrested for, for minor violations and things. But if the name wasn't Trail Blazer, you wouldn't be Jail Blazer. Um, just like the Pistons were the bad boys, maybe not a name you really want, but they played a real physical brand. I think with both those teams, the fact you could get a catchy name was 
was part partly because the teams were so good. If your team is lousy, nobody's going to put a catchy name on you and use it. I think uh, obviously the Pistons were better than we were. They won a couple titles, but we were knocking on the door. We went to the the conference finals twice, and we were really really good. So uh, fair from the standpoint of we had some characters, no no doubt about it, and we had some high maintenance guys, no doubt about it. Unfair if you want to take the literal meaning of it, uh, but I don't think the literal meaning is really what we look at in sports. I think we look at nicknames and cliches and a lot of things like that. So no, I, I, I don't think it was, you know, uh, I think the report card for me was we won a lot of games and the building was sold out every night. And uh, if the fans are coming, uh, there's always going to be a few that have something bad to say or negative, but as long as they're coming and they're engaged and they're passionate, we're in good shape. Yeah, winning, winning uh, what did Lombardi say? Winning is everything. Or so, you know, it's so, not so. everything. It's the only thing. The only thing, right. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. What was your favorite trade you did with the Sonics and the Blazers? Which which one uh, trade you did with each franchise did you really look back and go, God, it was a great trade, or, or one that you really liked? Well, I, I don't have a favorite trade, but um, I think two of them that I liked, um, I'll give you one for each team. And I think I kind of put the anatomy of each of these trades in the book because I tried to give uh, readers the dynamics of how different trades come together. Because I think too many times people think you just call up a GM and say, hey, you want to trade this guy for that guy? Yeah, great. Let's do it. No, every trade. I've had trades that have taken me two years to put together. I've had trades that have taken me two weeks to put together and, and everything in between. But um, two players I was... I'll say taking heat over um, one with the Sonics was a guy. We had a guy named Benoit Benjamin, who was just a sure. very talented center. Uh, let's say he was lazy to, to put a label on him uh, or, or you know, not a, a fireball. But when I, when I have those guys, I know they're not going to stay on my roster forever. I, I, I'm using them to get to another place, but obviously I can't tell anybody and I'm doing my best to get the most out of that player and and have the world think this guy's going to the Hall of Fame so I can get him somewhere else. But Benoit became the centerpiece to a trade I made with Jerry West and the Lakers, which was Benoit for Sam Perkins. Sam was a great player for that team that turned out to be the the great Sonics team that George Carl coached in the um, early to mid nineties that was winning a bunch of games, eventually got to play Jordan in the finals. And Sam was a great uh, center and stretch four, long armed, great defender, great teammate, smart player. So we never would have had that kind of success if we had stayed with Benoit as the center. So uh, getting that kind of player for Benoit, I think part of it was we got some good games out of Benoit and we had a, a really good playoff series out of Benoit. The other one with, Similar to that would be with Portland. I traded some uh, role guys who weren't playing for us to Minnesota for a very uh, uh, talented but controversial guy named J.R. Ryder. And to say he was a character would not be doing justice. Uh, there's some, some you wouldn't believe it stories about him in the book. But, um, I mean, if J.R. doesn't give you an ulcer, nobody will. And, and he might have given me one. I can't remember. But. Uh, ultimately I got some good mileage out of him and we got to the conference finals. And as soon as we got to the conference finals, nobody would touch this guy when I traded for him. Nobody would even take him for free. 
when I, when we got done with them after a few years, I actually created a market for them and I traded them to Atlanta for an all-star guard, six eight uh, off guard named Steve Smith. And Steve also was a J. Walter Kennedy Citizenship Award winning. So I took this character and got a citizen or however you want to characterize it. And then we had even a better run the following year. We That's when we lost to, in the finals in game seven to Kobe and Shaq. But I think anytime you can take a very questionable person slash basketball player that really nobody in the league wants and find a way to get enough out of that player where then there's a market for him and you can get a much better player that's more stable uh, those are the, are really the rewarding deals. Now you have to take a lot of heat during the process and your, your skin better be pretty thick and you can't tell people, don't worry, I'm not going to keep them. I'm just, it's a stopgap because you'll never create a market. So you got to be committed to it and you got to take some heat and your coaches are going to sort of backstab you with the media saying they can't coach the crazy guy or whatever. But your job is to get the, the team built in a way that you finally have all the pieces in place where you really have a chance to go for it. And it takes time to get all the pieces and they all come from different way forms. You know, you draft them, you develop them, you trade for them, you sign them as free agents, all those uh, ways of, of, of building a roster. It takes time. I mean, it takes a couple of years, three years, four years, whatever it may take. So anytime you can sort of take the, uh, you know, the four of diamonds and turn it into an ace, you feel really good. And uh, it doesn't happen that often. So when you do that, those are the moments, I think, as a GM, you kind of look back and go, ooh, that was a long couple of years, but man, it was worth it. Got to tell you, Sonics fans, we love that Perkins trade, Bob. That was just a, that was an amazing trade. Getting big smooth. Love it. Yeah. As a big Sonics fan, love that one. You know, you hired George Carl. And although George was not that old when you hired him, he was kind of perceived as a little bit of an over-the-hill coach. Um, that was a bold decision he made that worked out pretty well, didn't it? That was a challenging one. Um, so George uh, was a head coach when he was fairly young, had a couple years or a year and a half in Cleveland, had maybe a year and a half in Golden State. Um, I thought George was a good coach, but he, his ego got – He's got a nice size ego, but it really got out of control as a as a coach who thought he had some success at a, a young age. Anyway, got fired in Golden State, and he was out of the NBA for, I think, three or four years and couldn't get even an interview. Nobody wanted to touch this hothead. And, uh, you know, the ship has sailed. And so when we made a coaching change in Seattle, and it was uh, time for me to finally get to hire – my first coach as a Sonic uh, GM, I wasn't looking to hire my friend. I wasn't looking to hire this guy or that guy. I was trying to find somebody that I thought would be the best coach for the team I had and the team I was continuing to build. I'd already drafted Sean Kemp and Gary Payton. I had my nucleus. I had some of the, I had drafted Nate McMillan, uh, had some of the really good pieces on board. Uh, and we were getting pretty close to, to where we were going. And I was interviewing all the, you know, call them the retreads, um, the assistant coaches. Um, anyway, I never really knew George. Obviously, I knew who he was. I was in the league when he was in the league. And I noticed that he coached in the CBA and he did a pretty good job there. He was coaching in Spain, doing okay there. And um, I thought, 
this might be a good time to bring him back. He's probably been humbled. He's not any dumber. If you can coach in the CBA where you might lose your best player two hours before game time because he gets called up. If you can coach in the best league in Spain when half the guys don't know English. Uh, these are skills you're developing. So I got a hold of George and I, I wanted to see how, how uh, humbled he was. And I said, I want to interview you as an assistant coach for what I'm doing. And he's never been an assistant coach. And he was more than willing to be an assistant coach. And, and he said all the right things and, and did all the right things. Um, and then I said, okay, I'll get back to you. So then I went to meet with the owner and, and said, uh, you know, I want to hire George Carl as my head coach. And they told me no, because they didn't even know who he was. And so then I gave them a, a Continental Basketball Association media guide to read about George Carl. And they read about him for a minute and they said, no, he does nothing for us. Uh, nobody knows him. And and they did ask a good question. They said, have you, you know, got reference around the league? If you call people that have worked with them and know them, I go, yeah, I've called about 25 people. Uh, head coaches, assistant coaches, GMs, owners. And, uh, okay, well, what, what's the report? I said, well, 24 of them told me they wouldn't hire him if he was the last person on earth. And they all had the <laughs> same reasons. Argumentative, talks too much to the media, fights with the players. You know, it goes on and on and on. And one guy said, I would not hire him, but I wouldn't tell you not to hire him. Only you can make that call. And they go, so we rest our case. You know, are, you think all those people are, are are idiots? I said, no. But I said, you know, they also don't want us to do well, you know. And I said, uh, I think I can sign them to a short-term deal because the owner didn't want to spend a lot of money because we were still paying Casey Jones for the remainder of his contract. I think I can manage them. I think I can make this a partnership. And if I'm the guy who gives him a chance to resurrect his career, I'm going to negotiate a deal with him that's going to be the deal of all deals on, on what he can and can't do off the court. I mean, I, I had, I feel bad at how good a deal I negotiated for the team, but it was um, important. And they kept telling me no. And they finally said, you know, we're telling you we don't want you to hire him. You got the message. If it doesn't work out, you're gone too. And I said, well, I kind of always know that's the case, but I think it's the right move. So then I circled back to George and said, I'm going to go another way on my assistants, George, and I'm hiring the assistants, but I want you to be the head coach. And I thought if you could jump through a phone, he would jump through the phone. <laughs> and we knocked the deal down and, and George came in and uh, uh, we had a great working relationship. George did a fantastic job. Uh, I later left. George stayed there, continued to do a fantastic job. I think he won probably, I don't know, another maybe 1,100 games in the NBA after I brought him back and got into the Hall of Fame. And had I not brought him back, he would have had maybe 100 or so wins in the NBA and would have been just a, an asterisk somewhere. somewhere. But uh, uh, George had his moments in there, but he did a fantastic job with the Sonics. And that was that four, five, six-year run or whatever it was that he was coaching, that team was probably the best Sonic team ever in terms of an extended period of time. Uh, clearly, the best team was the 78 and 79 team because they, they won it in 79. But that team was really only good for two years. This team was really good for probably six years. So I think, again, go back to Game Changer. 
if you really believe something and you get a chance to run a team, don't let the media or people talk you out of it because you'll if you get fired, you're going to get fired. But you don't want to get fired and go, oh, man, I should have done what I believed in. If you do what you believe in and you get fired, you really have no regrets. It was on you. But if you didn't do what you believed in and got fired, shame on you. So um, I've been around long enough. I've done my homework well enough that I, I stay true to my convictions. And um, that's kind of how that came about. So uh, it worked out well, and I'm, I'm happy I did it. Go bold is part of the lessons, too, sometimes, too, right? Yeah, I wouldn't say go bold just to be bold or to be different. Go bold when you believe it's the right thing. And uh, you're being paid to, to make those decisions. You're spending 24 hours a day thinking about this stuff. Other people can come in and out for 30 minutes in a day and just give you a quick opinion and move on. But you should have more information, more knowledge, more insight, and, and understand the situation better than anybody. So you got to go with what you really believe is right. Still in touch with George? Yeah. As a matter of fact, I think I'll see him uh, next week. I think he likes to come in town every – so I saw him probably a month or so ago, and uh, he's doing pretty well. Great, great, great. What a, I just love these stories. As, as I told you, I was a diehard Sonics fan. I love the, yeah. these behind-the-scenes stories a lot. You got time for a few more questions? I'm here. Great, uh, great, great. I know you're going to ask me about the uh, current living sports personality, which I still haven't thought about. Oh, no pressure. No pressure. We'll, 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 get, to, we'll, get, we'll try to get to it again. Uh, you gave me great answers to those questions. But um, – Talk about saving the Seahawks and keeping them in Seattle. And why don't you share what, what the fan involvement role had in that? You know, I think that might be uh, my role in that as part of the bigger role is something I'm really proud of. So just to remind uh, people, it, it's sort of interesting. Uh, I can't find diehard fans, even diehard Seahawk fans, who as a whole – Remember that back in 1996, the Seahawks actually moved to Los Angeles and they were gone. Now, we all know the Sonics have been gone since 2008. We don't have an NBA team, but uh, there was a period in 96 where the owner, Ken Baring, literally just you know brought the moving vans in, cleaned out the Kirkland office, moved the team to L.A., and they were doing their off-season training there. And lawsuits started flying. The league didn't want it to happen. Not sure how all that would have ended up, but all chaos chaos broke loose. So uh, I was the president GM of the Trailblazers, um, kind of minding my own business, trying to run our teams and our buildings and things like that. And the community was trying to figure out how to save the Seahawks. Ken Baring said the team's not for sale. So you have to start with that premise. But even if the community could figure it out, Ken Baring wasn't coming back to Seattle. I mean, he was a villain and nobody, you know, after that move, you couldn't show your face. Uh, if the team was going to stay in Seattle or come back to Seattle, you needed new ownership. Uh, there weren't many people who could afford it. And the people that could probably had no interest. So people had approached Paul and he showed no interest. And then finally people got a hold of me and, hey, you're Paul's right hand guy. You're the sports guy. You know, and, and I'm all in. I love the NFL. I'll geez, anything I can do, I'd love to help. Um, so I started engaging with Paul. He had no interest in in buying a team, especially when it wasn't for sale. But as we talked more and more, I think he was open minded, not because he wanted to own another team. 
but really for his community. I mean, he, he understands the value of sports and uh, he likes football, but he loved basketball. Um, so he was open to it, but he said, look, it, uh, it has to be a community effort, not just one guy writing a check. And part of that, if I'm going to be involved, is we got to get rid of the kingdom. There's got to be an open air football stadium because that's the way football needs to be played and on and on and on. So started working with the politicians and, you know, hey, tell Paul to buy the team and then then we'll go build them a new stadium. And you know how all that works. And uh, I was working with the NFL. We'll do anything we can help. But Paul's not eligible to be an owner because he violates the cross ownership rule. We'd have to get that rule changed. OK, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, so there's all these different things going on. Um, plus, you got to get bearing to sell the team. So everybody's starting to get involved. And I'll, I'll cut to the chase because this is a whole chapter in the book. But um, we made a lot of progress. And then uh, Paul decided he wasn't interested anymore. And I was going to have a press conference saying he was out. But I kind of got Paul to give me a Hail Mary. And Paul's biggest concern was he felt if he bought the team, which wasn't for sale, once he owned it, the politicians would get amnesia and nobody would put public money into a new stadium and he'd be stuck having to foot the bill on something he he didn't sign up to do. He was asked to participate in. So I came up with the idea of uh, what if I could get an option, like a, a, a period of time that you have to exercise buying the team. And during that period of time, if we could get the all the pieces to the puzzle put in place, the biggest one being public money for the stadium, uh, you know, and the cross ownership rules and all these different things. Would, would you be open to it? And he said, you'll never get it and you'll never get Bering to agree to that and blah, blah, blah. So he gave me a week to sort of pull that off. So I, I you know, long story short, I got Ken Bering during that week, negotiated an option period. I wanted two years. He wanted six months. I think we settled on 14 months. So we had 14 months to go make it happen. And during that time, we really needed a giant community effort. We hired, uh, I think, a public affairs firm headed by Bob Gogarty. We had all kinds of former Seahawk players, community leaders, fans, booster clubs. This was going to go. We, we were in the legislature lobbying for, for public funding. Uh, Bud Coffey, the, the former lobbyist for Boeing, was working on our team. We had a lot of people working on this thing. And ultimately, the legislature said, if we approve something, it's going to have to go to a statewide vote. So we're we're all over the state. I am literally doing town hall uh, meetings, editorial board meetings, live media in, in, meetings, booster club meetings around the state nonstop, as are other people. I mean, everybody who can have the talking points is trying to do it. Um, and uh, it was probably be a month or so before the option expired. The statewide vote came up. And it was a nail biter because, as you can imagine, people on the eastern side of the mountain, they're not dying to put public money into stuff in Seattle. And the Mariners had gone through this a year prior. So I think there was public stadium fatigue. And it was a nail biter. We didn't get the vote to go our way till later in the evening. The vote passed. A month later, uh, we execute the option to buy the team. But Paul becomes the owner. And uh, he was a great owner. I mean, you know, took a very bad team for 10 years and. You know, 
all the things that have happened since you can go back and look at. But uh, we were really close to not having the NFL in the Northwest. And uh, if there's something you can feel good about in, in your sports career, it's probably being part of winning a championship. Uh, pr- probably even bigger than that is if you help either bring a team to your community or prevent a team from leaving your community. Those are long lasting events that uh, should make everybody in the community feel proud and, and happy that they were able to do that. You brought a very, very important part of that history, Bob. The Seahawks were literally training, I believe, at a junior high school in Los Angeles, right? They were in California, yes. California. It's amazing, amazing, amazing. Favorite sports movie? Oh, boy. Uh, depends what kind of mood I'm in. Uh, if, if I'm kind of in my negotiating mood, you could do a Jerry Maguire. If you're, uh, 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 you know, if I'm in my nostalgia mood because I uh, started my uh, career with the Pacers, I like Hoosiers because it's a feel good story. And it was filmed in Butler, uh, Hinkle Fieldhouse, where, where uh, Butler played. And a lot of the bit characters in the movie. Well, guys, I know they were like our scorekeeper for the Pacers and that. So uh, I'll give you th- those are two two good ones. I'll, I'll just stop it right there. You probably like Moneyball, right? Moneyball is good. I think it's really I. Um, uh, it's good because I think it's kind of the front end of analytics, which I think are, are continuing to evolve and a really important part of what we do. Um, and I guess anytime Brad Pitt's in a movie, you got to. You got to feel good. It's good for the audience. But uh, yeah, that was fun. I, I'd put that on the list. Real quickly, Bob, 94. I don't know if you had left the Sonics at this time, but I guess the franchise came this close to training uh, Sean Kemp or Scottie Pippen. Was that a missed opportunity for the Sonics not doing that trade? Well, I, I was gone then. So I was uh, I was running the Trailblazers. But I uh, uh, the GM of the Bulls called me and uh, he wanted to know everything on – humanly possible about Sean Kemp because they were contemplating doing that deal. Uh, and I tried to play it pretty neutral. Here's, you know, here's, you know, I, I was a big Sean fan, obviously. Uh, but then he called me, then he called me later yelling at me because he said the, uh, the Sonics backed out of the deal after they agreed to it. And uh, I said, why are you calling me? I'm the general manager of the trailblazers. He go, I, you're my friend. I just wanted to, 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 to air it out with you. I said, well, you're, you're talking to the wrong guy, but to answer your question, I don't know. I mean, you know, you can always go backwards and you could have done this, should have done that, might've done that. There's so many deals in, in the business that don't get done. Uh, some get a little traction and are, are discussed in the media or rumored in the media. Many of them don't even get into the media world. Uh, and oftentimes, the best deals we do are the ones we didn't do, even though we wanted to do them. So sometimes you get lucky and the deal that you wanted to do didn't get done. And you look back and go, wow, glad that didn't happen. And I guess uh, I guess in uh, Chicago's case, uh, they held on to Scotty. Michael took a vacation for a couple of years to play baseball. But then when he came back, Scotty and the core with Michael won three more. So I guess uh, from Chicago's point of view, I would I would argue boy, if you can uh, win three more titles with the guy you think you were going to trade, good thing you didn't make the trade. Probably a good non-trade for Chicago. You gave me a good perspective on that. 
Jerry Depoto, you know, the sports, you know, sports general managers go through. He had some recent comments and to be fair, he apologized for them, but he said that, and I'm paraphrasing, if, a fran- if the franchise can win 54% of their games over a certain time span, they have a shot at making the World Series. I'm summarizing what he said. What's your take on Jerry's comments? And um, just kind of give me your whole your whole take on this recent local sports episode. Well, I'm not going to really comment on Jerry. I know when you um, you finish a season and you're very close to making the playoffs, and in this case you play 162 or probably 161 games, before your playoff uh, fate is determined. That's a long season and that's an emotional grinder. And uh, uh, oftentimes as a GM, you have to talk to the media much sooner than you want to after a long season. Um, so I never really fault or or comment on, on, on those things. Here's what I would tell you though. And I was asked this question the other day about, and this isn't really what he was talking about, but the topic was tanking. What do you think about tanking so you can get lottery picks? And I'll give you my philosophy. It's real simple. I do everything I can to win every single game every time we play. I believe it's very difficult to create a culture of winning. You have to create create competition. You have to make the players know that the best players play. It doesn't matter who makes the most money. You can't say I'm going to lose for a few years, get a few lottery picks, and then sw- turn on a switch and you win. I have not seen a team that has used that formula and won a championship. Uh, you need veterans that know how to win. But how can you try to preach to your players you got to win every game and then you're trying to put lineups out there that lose or you tell a great all-star player, hey, you're going to not play the last 20 games and we're going to say your calf is sore uh, so I think it's hard to create a winning environment. And and I don't ever want to do anything that speaks to anything other than we're trying to win. Now, if you have an expansion team, they're young, they're not as talented. You may not have a great record, but that doesn't mean you're not trying to create a winning environment and a culture. It's just that you don't have, you know, you you did, you, you picked the ninth best player on every team and you you, you had the 10th pick in the draft. So these guys maybe aren't as good as some of the other players, but my, by, by gosh, you can still make them compete and play hard and, and play till the buzzer sounds. That's creating a winning environment, although you may not be winning at that particular moment, but the competition has to come first. So I don't get into uh, justifying how many games we won or didn't win. Hey, you make the playoffs or you don't, and it's hard to make the playoffs. And if you make the playoffs – you graduated to the next season, which is the championship season, and you got a chance. And if you're fortunate enough, part of playoffs are matchups. There's a part of playoffs are injuries. Part of playoffs are who's playing well at that time. There's a lot of variables. We all get that, but you've got to get to the second season before you can start talking about winning in the playoffs. And to get to that playoffs, it's hard. I mean, it's not easy. 82 games, 162 games, whatever the season is. So um, not really answering it, but I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm anti-load management. I'm anti-sitting guys. I never want to play players who are injured, but I want players who want to play. And I want players who want to compete, and I want players who want to play hard. And I think the fans who are paying a lot of money for tickets, that's what they expect, and I think that's what they deserve. 
I, I like Jerry. He's been on my show. He's been cordial in the interactions we've had. I, I think that a fan frustration is this is a franchise that started the Mariners the first year of the Carter administration, 1977, <laughs> and they've never made the World Series. I think there's a little fan impatience. Uh, my two cents, if this was a if this franchise was four or five years in, I don't think the fan reaction would have been as str- strong. That, anyway, that's my two cents, if I could share it with you. So No, I think uh, I wrote in my book because I wanted to touch on every sport, so I did put a, a little bit in there on baseball, and it was, I may be off a year, but the Mariners had missed the playoffs, I think, 20 or 21 years in a row. That's pretty hard to do. And last year, not this season that just ended, they they made the playoffs. And the city lit up again. The fans lit up again. The attendance is great. It was great this year. And my point was Seattle's a great sports market. You didn't have to win the World Series. You just got to give them a taste you gotta, you gotta, you gotta get to the second season. You can't do it every couple of decades. You can't have babies born and they're in college and they haven't seen a playoff game. So the fans are very loyal, but consistency is good. In Portland, we made the playoffs, made the playoffs twenty-one seasons in a row. Wow, well, that's a little extreme. But you can't miss the playoffs twenty-one season in a row either. So. Um, so yeah, I, I don't. I think I think there's a longer history there that, you know, these are generations that you know it's been a long time. So I think you gotta you gotta give them a little success before they they can let you have a little bit of string again. And I think as as managers and people in the business, I think everybody understands that, and and everybody's trying their best. And uh, certainly nobody wants to win more than the people running the teams. Well, these are my final questions. I've had so much fun here. I'm going to package three together. Uh, what's in the future for Bob Whitsitt? Would you ever want to teach at a college or a law school? And uh, who is a living sports figure? <laughs> a commissioner, a, an owner, just someone who's still with us in the sports world you love to chat with. I know I'm, I'm giving you a hard time. But I'm fun, All so. right. Well, let's start with the middle one. Uh, okay. uh, I did teach a graduate class at Seattle U a number of years ago for a semester. Um, I think it was actually called Inside the Front Office. Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, the students were fantastic. It was a lot of work, but once you get your your syllabus put together, it was very enjoyable. The challenge for me was I had to be in Seattle for the whole semester and have office hours. So I'm not sure I I want to commit that kind of time. Uh, I do uh, guest lecture at universities, you know, go and be a guest lecturer for a day. And I do that also at law schools. I I would love to continue doing that because it's a one-time deal for a couple hours and, and I do enjoy that. Uh, what's next for me? Uh, well, the book's getting launched here soon. I'll probably have a little post media on that, but then that project's done. I have to continue doing the diamond sports. We're in a chapter 11 reorg and, uh, very, very challenging, very, very complicated. Many, many constituents from the, uh, the three leagues to the 70 teams we're dealing with, to the distributors, to the creditors, to the equity holders. Uh, to the investment banks, to the law firms, it's it's big time, and it's uh, it's a lot of learning. Plus, it's uh, great for me to be on top of where the sports media business is going with cord cutting and streaming, and so I'm really getting to stay on top of and ahead of the curve on that. Um, so I'll continue to do that you know, until we we come out of Chapter 11. But really, I'd like to focus um, I'd like to focus my energy on. Uh, that effort that, you know, 
I'm ready to run a race, but nobody's told me the race has started yet. But uh, I'm certainly hoping that I, I, I hear Adam Silver say the league's decided to uh, look into expanding. All you cities get your RFPs together. And uh, uh, I'm sure Seattle, I'm sure Vegas, I'm sure you know, half a dozen other cities will show up. And I've, I've been involved in that from the league side probably seven times. But that's not an easy thing. I mean, there's a lot to put into uh, the bid and there's a lot of elements that are required. Um, again, I've been on, on the side of approving those deals or voting on those deals. So uh, I just really want to see us get a team back. And then I'll, I'm going to continue to consult. I've got projects right now in the sports business. I, one just came up today with a uh, guy wants me to help him with a, a skating rink project. Uh, I mean, there's just things that come up, but I, uh, I take on some things if they uh, they they fit in with what I uh, think I'm good at, and uh, I've got the time to do it. But uh, we'll see. I just uh, stand by, stand ready, and uh, just looking to do fun projects, and uh, uh, and I'll still do a little bit of legal work uh, here and there on the side. So uh, uh, I'll leave the podcasting to the professionals like you. Well, happy to be a guest because that's about the uh, the extent of my bandwidth. Well, this has been so much fun. I, I, I'm like such a, just a, a regular Seattle sports fan getting over an hour at Bob Whitsett. What a, what a wonderful uh, uh, opportunity. And uh, um, I'll, I guess we're going to finish. I want you to bring up a living sports figure. I'll just spend time with. I'm okay. I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be really gentle because okay. it's local. Yeah. Um, I'd like to meet Sue Bird because of what she's done for the storm and what she did in college um what she's done for women's sports um i was the president of the portland expansion team for three years before we folded it and that team came in the same time as the storm so i i did get uh, three years of, of working in the wnba but she's local i admire what she's done all the championships she's helped bring to seattle and i think you should start with local and then work your way out so uh uh, Sue, if you're listening or you're watching the pod, uh, love to have lunch with you sometime. Love to get her on my pod too. Uh, great name. You know, you, you, you came out, came with it a, several minutes later, but, uh, Vince Lombardi and Sue Bird were two great names. Well, Bob, just love this hour and, uh, let's you and I stay in touch and, um, we'll, uh, we'll close out and I'll have you say goodbye to Olivia in a minute. So. All right. Thank you so much, Paul. You too, Bob.